The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. We're going to read two passages, and the first is going to be uh, the Deuteronomy passage that I mentioned earlier, Deuteronomy chapter 29. This is actually in support of the idea that the bitter root in Hebrews 12, 15 is a person, not merely an attitude. Deuteronomy chapter 29, we're going to back up and start reading at verse 14. This is the reading of God's word. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you've seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman or family, or tribe, whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root-bearing, poisonous fruit and wormwood. That is a bitter root. It shall be when he, the bitter root, hears the words of this curse, that he will boast, saying, I have peace Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry, the Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As you're being seated, go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Starting at verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. When you say, Peter's, Peter's actually being generous. Rabbis taught three times. Three times and you're done. Peter's like, seven? Seven's a lot. That's like twice, more than twice of three. Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to, New American Standard, 77 times or 70 times seven, right? So that means on the 491st time, then they're done. No, that's not the point, all right? 70 times seven, taking into account the, the, the significance of the numbers, that is, you keep forgiving, okay? For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10 thousand talents, okay? A talent, some of your margins will tell you, more than 15 years wages as a laborer. 10,000 talents. 
insurmountable, okay, was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, duh, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell on the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. So a denarii is a day's wage. So about a third of a year's income. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying exactly what he had just said to the king. Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in this time that you would help us. Lord, help us. Help us to think clearly, understand your word clearly. But Lord, we pray for more than understanding. We pray for the power to, to will and to do what you call us to do. We pray for grace. Lord, th- these are hard things. We know that. So we pray for grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we looked at confronting the bitter root, and um, uh, I know that it was painful, all right? The fact that more than two-thirds of you died between the services is just proof. Absolutely painful, Um, but necessary, okay? I'm not going to review from this morning, in part to spare you. All right? In part, to spare you. But we need to talk about now how to uproot the bitter root. And in a sense, when you think about what we, what we looked at this morning, if the primary reason or cause of bitterness is unforgiveness, then we have to actually, we have to, we have to, we have to learn and then apply Gospel forgiveness. Okay? So, so understand that this is, this is more than giving you a few helpful hints to help you think more clearly about this. This is actually to help us understand, but then also apply. If, if you only understand and don't apply, then you come short. Okay? This requires application. Okay? So, as we think about uprooting the bitter root, What that means is putting off bitterness and putting on in its place grace 
and forgiveness. All right? So, in a sense, real simple. Putting off bitterness means putting on, in its place, grace and forgiveness. So, uprooting bitterness begins by seeing that if I'm the bitter root, okay? You you saw that clearly, right, in the Deuteronomy 29 passage. A man, a woman, a family, a tribe, right? You can have bitter roots that grow up. If I say, that's me, all right, then without mitigating the significance of maybe the sins that have been committed against me, I have to actually acknowledge that I'm the problem. If I'm a bitter person, I am the problem. This is one of the things that we don't like to do because there are real offenses against us, real sins against us, things that really hurt, things that really cause deep wounds against us, and we're not minimizing the reality of, of any of that. But here's, here's the truth, is that if, that if those offenses has created in us um, being a bitter person, then now I'm the problem. I'm a pollutant. I'm a corrupter. I'm corrosive. I'm actually blocking the, the, the grace of God, not only to myself, but to other people. I'm a troublemaker. I'm a contention magnet. And so now we go from having the incident being a real incident to now turning it into something that is far bigger than than it being the mere incident that occurred. And so then the question becomes, so how in the world can I... Can I be free? So you say, put off bitterness, put on its place grace and forgiveness. Okay, that sounds, that sounds fine, it sounds right, but how in the world do I do that? If I see that, that I'm a bitter person, I'm the problem, how in the world can I be transformed in such a way that I become a conduit of grace and forgiveness and mercy to other people. This isn't the biggest concern, but I just want to remind all of us. I read Dolores Aguilar's obituary. If you're a bitter person, people will be glad when you're dead. Seriously, you're a bitter person, people will be like, whew. Okay. You want to live in such a way that the grace and the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ is such a part of your life that when you die, you will be missed. Now, the good news for all of us, right? So, so, I don't think that there's probably anybody that escaped unscathed this morning except those that were sleeping. Okay. Um, if, we didn't, if we didn't escape unscathed, then all of us to one degree or another felt the sting of, of that, felt the conviction of that. Here's, here's the good news. There is a place 
where bitterness dies. And that place is the foot of the cross. Okay? That's where bitterness goes to die. All right? So now the question is, so how can, can God transform me from being a bitter person to being a person who now is a person of grace and forgiveness, right? And so the first thing, and I'm just going to give you a few points. A few months ago, we just did two parts on how do we know we've forgiven in Sunday school, all right? I'm not going to rehearse all of that. You can go back and listen to that. There are things that I lay out for you on, I know that I've I know that I'm a forgiving person when I do these things. And, and so I would just point you back to that. But we're going to do a little different this afternoon, all right? So the very first thing that has to happen in order for me to put off bitterness, kill bitterness, and put on in its place grace and forgiveness is that I have to understand the consequences of being a bitter person who does not forgive. I have, to, I have to understand those consequences. You know, if you, uh, my mom grew up, she, I think my mom started smoking cigarettes when she was like 10 years old. And um, she, she smoked cigarettes up until I was 14, and then she uh, miraculously stopped. Um, for, that's a different sermon illustration. But, um, so I, I know what packs of cigarettes look like. And there, there's a little tiny, little tiny warning, and it's a little bigger now probably, that says basically, this is harmful for your health, right? Okay, it's a warning, harmful for your health. You do this, you can get lung cancer, you can get sick, you can die. I was in Zambia, and I walk into the, the um, duty-free store, and you know what's in duty-free stores in international airports? Booze and cigarettes, all right? But in Zambia, they'll have, a, they'll have a pack of cigarettes, but before you can even tell what the, what the brand is, in big red letters, right across from big block red letters, it will say, use of this product will kill you, all right? It's not like some little tiny warning label that you got to, like, okay, the Surgeon General, who's that? You know, this is just like using this product will kill you. All right. So here's the, here's the point. Scripturally, think of bitterness and think of a big red banner across it that says, you participate in this sin, it will kill you. When that bitterness raises up its head, You keep in mind the consequences of being a bitter person. And so that parable that we just read, that's for us. Those threats are for us. And so very frankly, straightforwardly, if I'm an unforgiving person, that is, it's not just a matter that I struggle to forgive. I'm an unforgiving person. I'm unwilling to forgive. You know, there's a difference. If I'm unwilling to forgive, it is a reflection that my lack of capacity to forgive indicates that I myself 
am not forgiven. So if I have zero capacity to forgive, it is an indication that I myself am not forgiven. By the way, that's that's the point of the parable. That's the point of what Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer and then right after the Lord's Prayer. And so Don Carson says, those who are forgiven must forgive, lest they themselves should be incapable of receiving forgiveness. This isn't hard. So bitterness and unforgiveness is actually the barrier that actually clogs up my ability to receive God's forgiveness. And so I would just tell you right right out of the gate that the very first thing in putting off bitterness and putting on grace and forgiveness in its place is actually don't treat bitterness and unforgiveness lightly. It's a cancer. It's an absolute cancer. You need to realize that, that, that if, if your way, all right, so your way is not to be a forgiving person, you have to realize that you are, one, denying the grace of God, which was demonstrated in the magnitude of your own sin. So if, if, if I won't forgive, I am denying this magnanimous grace that was required to forgive me of a massive debt of sin. When I deny forgiveness to others and I harbor bitterness towards others I'm actually saying something more about myself than about them and so when the apostle says be kind tender hearted to one another forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you the refusal to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you may be a simple indication that you don't know what it is to actually be forgiven by God in Christ. Okay? Now, that's going to become clearer in a second. So then the second thing is, is I have to understand the scales of sin biblically. So this is is how you do the first part, by the way. You understand the scales of sin biblically. So the, the parable shows us, in Matthew 18, the parable shows us that God's true people have been forgiven far more than we will ever be required to forgive. Okay? Let me just say that again. God's true people have been forgiven of far more than we will ever be required to forgive. Therefore, forgiveness from the heart is simply the true indication that I've received God's forgiveness and I cherish it. When, when, when I as a sinner, when, when I as a wretch know that 
The holy, infinite, eternal, majestic God has forgiven me of a mountain of sin that I don't even know the half of it. Let's face it, we don't even know the half of it. We are so much worse than any of us could ever even imagine. If you feel bad, let me just tell you, you don't feel nearly as bad as you should feel. If you see yourself as a sinner, you don't see yourself nearly as the sinner that you really are. Hearts deceitful above everything else, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I can't even know the depth of this thing. And so, as a, as a forgiven sinner, I come and I see the majesty of God, the holiness of God, and I begin to see that my sins, what were my sins? My sins were an un payable debt that if God had not freely forgiven me of an unpayable debt then I would have gone to hell forever and never able to pay that debt there's no such thing as purgatory it's not like after six million years I got it paid off it doesn't work that way it is an insurmountable debt. When does, when does a sin against a holy, infinite, eternal God ever stop being a sin? And so when I begin to feel the weight of what I've been forgiven of, when I begin to realize that that noose of divine judgment had been around my neck and it was tightening up, and yet God in great mercy did what? Just tenderly took me off of those gallows and put that noose around his son's neck and then pulled the lever and let him die for me. How in the world can I actually not be a forgiving person? How in the world can I be a person that holds a grudge? So when we understand the the scales on which sin sits... And what it means to be forgiven of an insurmountable amount of debt. How in the world can I throttle a fellow sinner? You understand there's something in the parable that demonstrates a disparity. So the king is greater than the servant. Right? Okay, this isn't, this isn't like complex The king is greater than the servant. The degree of sin is measured by the holiness of the one offended. By the way, we have that same principle in our own system of jurisprudence. Okay? If I just just kill somebody... Okay, that's bad, and I, I'll, I'll be arrested, and I'll be put on trial. But if, let's say, I, let's say I shoot the president. I probably shouldn't say this, because now, right, Daniel's saying no. So let's say, <laughs> yeah, so now I'm stuck. Help me, Matt. <laughs> okay, if Matt shows up and starts questioning me, I know that I really overstepped here. So let's say, okay, uh, okay, I'll change it. Let's say um, I shoot the king. All right, will, will that work? Okay, all right. okay now if I shoot the king is that worse than actually just shooting an ordinary citizen and the answer is yes 
because of what, what the crown represents, okay? So the, the dignity of the person offended, or sinned against, violated, is actually, we, we say in our own system that it adds extenuating circumstances. If, if a person kills somebody in the commission of a robbery, then that is murder. If you kill a police officer or you kill a judge, right? You kill somebody that represents something bigger than just their own personhood. There are extenuating circumstances. Who is the highest, most glorious person in all of the universe? God himself. So there is a disparity in the parable. The king represents God, the servant. So not just insurmountable debt in terms of dollars and cents, insurmountable debt in that it was a servant who sinned against the king. Right? You tracking with me? Then that guy goes out and refuses to forgive somebody who is his peer, his equal, servant to servant. All right? Now, The point of the parable is this. Understand the scales of sin. The majesty of the king, the insurmountable debt that was owed actually is not even close to ever being able to be compared with what that fellow servant owed his co-servant. All right? So when you start to realize the majesty, the glory, the immensity of God, and you begin to realize that this God, who is just and holy, could have actually justly, justly exacted a punishment from us that would be eternal. If you're a Christian, that's what you've been saved from. A punishment that was eternal. And you're forgiven how? Freely. How in the world can we turn around and yet refuse to forgive somebody who has sinned against us in a way that does not even begin to compare with the sin we've committed against God. The only explanation must be, I don't have a clue of what my sin looks like in the eyes of a holy God, and therefore I don't have a clue of what forgiveness really is all about. And so you understand the scales of sin. We understand that when you receive that forgiveness from the king, there is, there's not just this, oh, I'm forgiven. There is, this, there is this cherishing of the forgiveness of this multi-trillion dollar debt. And cherishing such mercy received has to at least give me a heart to want to show that mercy to other people. And here's the problem, is that we become so big in our own eyes, we become so important in our own eyes, that we actually think that sins against us must be tantamount to sins against the Almighty. 
It is not true. People do terrible things to other people. People do unspeakable things to other people. People do things against people that that if we had a biblical society, they'd be hanging from the gallows. Okay? But even the worst of the worst could never sin against us in such a way that it would surpass our sins against God. You let that sink in. You let that just as part of Ephesians 4.32, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, you let that start to sink in and it changes your heart. Now, if I can't do that, if I'm just like, okay, I understand what you're saying. This person hurt me. They hurt me bad. They ruined my life. I am still so angry and bitter against this person that I wish they would die. That face is right there living, rent-free in your head right now. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? As we're talking about forgiveness, bitterness, sin, there's a face. There's a face. This isn't just some ambiguous, nebulous person that's uh, like the, 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 the pictures that come up from people that text you that haven't taken time to put their picture in. If I can't, I have to ask myself, why? See, I have to ask myself, why? As a believer in Jesus Christ, do I not have inexhaustible resources in him. You believe that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessing is not that which is opposed to material blessing. It is blessings of the Spirit. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, What kind of blessings do you have in Christ? Blessings of the Spirit. How many? You have them all. You're not lacking resources. Or um, what about um, 2 Peter chapter 1 that he has granted to us through precious and magnificent promises all things necessary for faith and godliness. He's granted, freely given, everything necessary for 
faith and godliness? Is forgiveness and putting off bitterness a matter of faith and godliness? And the answer is yes. Do you have the resources in Christ to actually do it? And the answer is yes. You've been made complete in him. Colossians 2.10. You don't lack anything. Everything that God requires of you in his word, he has graciously provided for you in the resurrected, ascended, reigning Christ and his spirit. You don't lack the grace or the power or the will to do what he calls you to do. So you don't live like a pauper. There was this guy that wanted to go on a cruise really bad. It wasn't Steve Nugent or Brian Borgman. This guy goes to the travel agent. He flips through all the magazines and he finds, he finds the cruise. He's okay, that's a lot of money. I'm going to save up. And he works hard and works hard and works hard and puts money away, puts money away, puts money away. Finally, he gets the amount that he needs and he goes and he starts to realize, okay, I'm going to get the cruise. So he goes and he buys his tickets and he's got like two months before the, before the ship takes off out of the port and he's going, going to go on this cruise of a lifetime. And so he starts thinking, okay, I spent all my money on the tickets. What I'm going to do is every day I'm going to make two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and I'm going to store them up and stick them in a cooler. And then when I get on the ship, that way I don't have to pay for any food. Two-week cruise... Everybody's going to the lobster bar, prime rib, you name it. Chocolate bar, that's my my what gets Steve on a cruise. (laughs) Chocolate bar. And and finally, like after, after 13 days, they have one more day, a guy says, hey, I haven't seen you in the dining hall this whole time. He goes, yeah, I couldn't afford it. I actually go to my cabin and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The guy says, you're an idiot. This is an all-inclusive cruise. (laughs) The food's included. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) wow. Okay, so here's the point. God's actually provided everything. And some of you act like he's telling you to live on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Some of you act like the resources of God are stingy. And they're not. If you're a Christian, is there an active, present power of the cross of Jesus in your life? Absolutely. I've actually been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. There is, there is an inexhaustible resource in the power of the cross. Is there an inexhaustible resource in the power of the Holy Spirit? The answer is, of course there is. Is there an inexhaustible resource of the grace of 
God? And the answer is, of course there is. Is there the inexhaustible resource of his holy inspired word? And the answer is, of course there is. And so all that is needed for me to actually really forgive from the heart, God has available to me through the cross, through the spirit, through the word, by his grace. I'm not lacking anything. So, at the, at the end of the day, what that means is that if I don't forgive, that's on me. I'm living as if I were an impoverished child of God. And so, what we have to say then is that ultimately... Unforgiveness, unforgiveness is a matter of unbelief. And forgiveness is a matter of faith. It's unbelief in the gracious forgiveness of God towards us in Christ Jesus. It's unbelief in the threats of our Lord Jesus. If I look at that, you, you, you partake of this product, you're going to die. And I go, I'm not going to die. My wisdom's trumping the wisdom of the Son of God, which is folly. It's unbelief in his power to provide us with the necessary grace to forgive I read this a few months ago, so good. It's John Piper, Battling Bitterness. He says, saving faith is not merely believing that you're forgiven. Saving faith means believing that God's forgiveness is an awesome thing. Saving faith looks at the horror of sin and then looks at the holiness of God and believes that God's forgiveness is a staggering beauty and unspeakably glorious. Faith in God's forgiveness does not mean merely, does not merely mean confidence that I'm off the hook. It means confidence that this is the most precious thing in the world. That's why I use the word cherish. Saving faith cherishes being forgiven by God. And and here's and there's a link with our battle against bitterness. You can go on holding a grudge if your faith simply means you're off the hook. But if your faith means standing in awe of being forgiven, then you can't go on holding a grudge. You've fallen in love with mercy. Have you fallen in love with mercy? It's your life. So you battle bitterness by fighting for the faith that stands in awe of God's forgiveness of your sins. So let's go back to that person that's living rent-free right in your head. You talk about bitterness. Boy, that, you don't even have to think hard. They're right there. What do you do? You can think of that person and you can say out loud, God, I have sinned more against you in one day than that person could have ever sinned against me in ten lifetimes. 
I confess that. I confess it. God, my only hope is that you have forgiven me of an insurmountable debt that should have landed me in hell. And so how can I now hold, fill in their name, how can I hold his debt or her debt against them when you have forgiven me of so much? Now, I went over this a few months ago. That doesn't mean you run out and tell that person you forgive them when they haven't asked. Okay? Don't do that for lots of reasons that we went over. Don't do that. But you can have, you can have an attitude of forgiveness towards that offender in a way that you know you're not holding anything against them. You know that you're free from grudges. You know that you're free from bitterness. You know that that person is no longer living rent-free in your head day in and day out. And you know that bitterness is not consuming your life. There's not been reconciliation because there's been no repentance. And so what do you do? You maintain that attitude of forgiveness towards that person so that on the event that God himself works in that person's life and they come to you and they say, would you please forgive me? Your heart's been so primed with the forgiveness of God in Christ and your heart's been so primed by the grace of God. You look at that person and you say, I've waited for this day. Of course I forgive you. God, please help me cherish your forgiveness so that being a bitter root is absolutely unthinkable to me. I want to be, I don't want to be a poisonous root that causes trouble and defiles many. I want to actually be the aroma of Christ, of life unto life. I want to be the aroma of Christ. I want to be an ambassador for Christ. I want to be, I, I, want, I want his grace and forgiveness to have so permeated my thoughts, my affections, that, that, that I live and people look at me and they know that I'm not a bitter person, not an angry person. I'm a person who actually loves and forgives and I'm a person of grace and I believe in grace and I believe in mercy. You want to you want to talk about you want to talk about um, having a witness to your kids, a witness to your friends, your neighbors, your family. Be a forgiver. So, out of our experience of divine grace, forgiveness, I can put off bitterness. Because I can put on an attitude of forgiveness. I can put off bitterness because I I can put on thankfulness. You know, we sing stuff every single Lord's Day that should just weigh on us. Because love came down. 
to save a wretch like me. If you sing it and you mean it, and then you walk out of here and you go, pay up. You didn't mean it, no matter how loud you sang it. But if you sing that, and your heart just melts, I should be in hell. I'm in the beloved, forgiven. I love you. I want good for you. I want to show you mercy. That's power. And it's power that will break the devil's back. You want to give him a foothold? Ephesians 4.26. Be bitter. You want to cut him off at the knees and send him home packing. Forgive! The devil loves bitter people. If you're bitter, the devil loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So let go of bitterness. Fight it with faith in the promises and threats of God. If you cannot, you just, frankly, you might just need to be born again. If you can, by God's grace, you can be totally free. And so don't live your life in a way that your bitterness corrupts everybody around you. And then when you die, everybody's really happy. Relieved. Live your life in such a way that there's so much grace and so much mercy about you and the way that you just treat people and love people that the tears flow when they put you in the ground. You live that kind of life, you will live a life that exemplifies the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will be a gospel person in action. And that's what I want to be. That's what I want to be. Think of it this way. The greatest demonstration of the reality of the gospel in your life is seen in you forgiving others. You are no more like your Savior than when you say from the heart, I forgive you. Let's pray. Father, we we pray that you would do a work in us. Show us mercy and grace in ways that just refresh our own hearts. We pray that we would absolutely repudiate and repent harshness, bitterness, 
contention, and that we would love peace and grace and mercy. We'd pursue peace with all men. We pray that you would help us in these things. Lord, we know that, and we know it's hard, but we also know that this is where the power of the gospel becomes real. So help us for the glory of your Son who has forgiven us of more than we could ever imagine. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.